0: Today on the ReSUS course, we're going to be talking with Dr. Nick Sowers about front of neck airway. Dr. Sowers is a physician here in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Dow. He's a trauma consultant and trauma team leader, a medical control physician for the critical care transport program with EHS, and he has a special interest in airway management. He's a senior instructor for the AIM airway course. He runs the Dal EM Airway Elective, and he's overall an airway enthusiast, and it's a pleasure to have him here today. Thanks for coming, Nick.
1: Thanks for having me, James. Appreciate the uh, very formal introduction.
0: (laughs) All right, Nick. So we're going to get started on a case here. I'm going to describe to you what is essentially a disaster airway, and I'm going to set you up for some questions. Uh, How does that sound? Sounds great. Okay, so you're in the emergency department. It is 3 a.m., and a 55-year-old female presents with shortness of breath and hypoxia. On arrival, she has a GCS of 14. She's confused. Her saturations are 85% on a non-rebreather, and her respiratory rate is 35. Her heart rate's 110, blood pressure is 120 on 75, and she's got a temperature of 38.9. It is very clear that she's got some form of pneumonia. Her chest x-ray reveals bilateral infiltrates. And after three hours in the emergency department, she continues to decline. She's on high-flow nasal cannula at 90% at 60 liters per minute, and she appears fatigued. You repeat her gas, her CO2 is shown to be climbing, and you reluctantly decide that she needs to be intubated. So uh, you're an astute physician, so you do a good airway assessment. You know that she's obese. She has minimal mouth opening, full dentition. Her malempati is 4 and obviously, you consider an awake intubation, but the patient is now more confused and is pushing you away. She won't tolerate a topicalization. So, uh, I mean, first of all, this is obviously a terrible situation. This is like a nightmare airway scenario. Uh, how, how would you go about planning for this airway, Nick?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, James. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. Everything about this is bad. Uh, so anatomically speaking, lots of predictors for difficult uh, difficult intubation, difficult laryngoscopy, difficult bag mass ventilation, and difficult access for a surgical airway. And then on top of that, anatomic difficulty, uh, everything, almost every way in which we're going to have someone that's physiologically complex or physiologically difficult to intubate is also present. So she is at this point essentially a failure of aggressive, active pre oxygenation. Uh, if she still remains hypoxemic, you know, despite non-invasive, which, you know, in her particular patient population being morbidly obese, you know, the evidence would suggest is the optimal way to try and pre-oxygenate someone. Uh, hemodynamically, she's uh, she's certainly a bit, uh, a bit tenuous and high risk for decompensation with intubation uh, and that transition to mechanical ventilation. So everything about this, anatomically and physiologically, uh, should have any reasonable Airway managing uh, practitioner, uh, nervous uh, and uh, and you know really taking the time to to step back and focus on how do I manage this patient's airway in the safest way possible. As you alluded to, an awake intubation is 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 the the optimal approach, in my opinion managing this airway, um, both from an anatomic perspective and from a physiologic perspective, especially with respect to the failure to preoxygenate this patient. However, you know, there's a window of time in which you can do that. And so let's say for the sake of the, of the discussion, you know, we, we've missed that window and, and you know, the awake intubation is not, not possible for this lady, although that would have been ideal. Um, where that sort of leaves you from an algorithm perspective is, you know, to put your best foot forward to try and gain control of that patient's airway uh, uh, with the minimum number of attempts possible, which is with an RSI and paralysis. Um, From an algorithm perspective, it puts you, you know, uh, way over on the right-hand side of the AIM algorithm, which is to say, uh, you know, difficulty predicted both anatomically and physiologically. And so we're going to proceed with an RSI uh, with additional preparation while concurrently aggressively managing this patient's physiologic derangements. That RSI with extra preparation, it might include a few things. For me, um, I want a second, very skilled, experienced provider in the room. So whether that's another emergency physician, whether that's a critical care paramedic, but I need somebody else there in the room with me. It may be a a decision to go ahead and and prepare for uh, extra equipment to be ready. So this is someone who, you know, you may choose, you know, say a hyperangulated video approach. Uh, but in addition to that, you may have your flexible intubating scope mm. out and turned on and ready, so that say a dual video approach could be undertaken. This is someone who, you know, your extraglottic device, your superglottic device, as part of your rescue strategy, you know, it's not in the package in the bottom drawer; it's out and on the table and ready to go. And finally, it's you know a consideration towards you know what's the ultimate step uh, in a in an airway that may inevitably. Um, be very difficult, uh, which is a surgical airway. And so this is a, this is a patient where I think you very clearly need to, uh, to put some thought into preparation to a surgical airway.
0: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So in your planning for this airway, do do you verbalize your plan for phona? I mean, you've said it here that you're, you're getting ready for it and mentally at least you have sort of, um, an algorithm that you're going to work through. But do you verbalize that to the room? And, and if so, what do you say or what do you do?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I take a varied approach kind of depending on the level of concern that I have or my, the level of difficulty that I appreciate. And that's going to range from, you know, at baseline for every single intubation, I'm going to palpate the structures on the anterior neck. I'm going to examine that patient as part of my array assessment for any predictors of difficulty in doing a cricothyrotomy. Uh, and I'm going to take out a pen or a marker uh, and draw a little x on the, on the patient's neck where I think the cricothyroid membrane is. And I'll do that for almost every intubation, even ones where I think this is going to be very straightforward. And the reason why is that uh, I guess two reasons why. One is that if ultimately I'm surprised uh, in the middle of that intubation and something I think might be straightforward is in fact really difficult, then there's something psychologically different about looking down and and cutting on an X or a dotted line or a, mm-hmm. you know, if in the event of emergency yeah. cut here, something psychologically different about that act as opposed to looking down and cutting on a patient's neck. Um, and so it's just one more sort of little cognitive kind of trick to, to maybe make that easier for you. Um, if in the moment you are caught off guard by the, by the, you know, patient who is unable to be intubated that you didn't appreciate. Um, in the ones where, I, where I'm a little bit more concerned for the potential for that inevitability to, to occur, I, str- I start drawing X's on people's necks because it's an important nonverbal communication to everybody else in the room. And so if the department paramedic, if the nurses, the other physicians, the residents in the room see me feeling the neck, see me putting a little X on the patient's anterior neck, even if I've not said anything, it communicates to them, well, Nick's thinking about the potential for a surgical airway. Uh, it makes them aware that that's a potential uh, outcome of what we're about to do. And it, and it adds to that sense of inevitability of the procedure itself. Because in my mind, the surgical airways that are likely to be successful uh, in the sense that the patient's going to have a good outcome are often ones in which when the procedure occurs, everyone saw it coming. They recognize it as part of ultimately the plan. They saw us working through that plan and ultimately ending up um, at an inevitable final step to that plan, as opposed to the rooms where a surgical airway may happen and no one saw it coming, no one understood it to be the final step of a well-thought-out plan. um, Those rooms have a tendency, uh, in my opinion, to devolve a bit more into chaos, which means that those who are in the room are maybe less likely to to help you get through that procedure and that very stressful uh, resuscitation. Um, as compared to when everyone sees it coming. So I think the, the drawing the X on the neck, really important nonverbal communication to everybody in the room. In a case like this, where you've got maybe significant um, concern for difficulty, I'll do the same, but I'll take the extra step to actually verbalize it out loud um, as part of the articulated airway plan. So I walk through that plan to say, we're going to do an RSI, it's for this reason, here are the drugs we're using. Here's plan A, plan B. Here's our exit strategy. And our exit strategy is, in fact, to do a surgical cricothyrotomy. Um, you know, here's how that's going to work. Here's who's going to do it. Uh, and in fact, I will articulate um, for really concerning cases, here are the triggers in which that procedure is going to happen. Because One of the other ways in which we get into trouble with respect to surgical airways is a tendency to not do them when they need to happen. We have this sort of fixation bias as the primary airway manager to just say, no, just give me 10 more seconds. I think I can get it. And we mess around and we delay, as I said, that inevitable procedure. And one of the ways I think we can get around that is we very clearly in the initial setup of the room and the articulation of the plan, we delineate what the triggers are to begin a surgical airway. And maybe that's, you know, an O2 saturation that falls below 90% in the context of I was unable to intubate, I'm unable to bag mass ventilate this patient. We set the, the parameters by which it occurs, and I'm going to offload that responsibility to someone else in the room. And the perfect person for this is usually like a charge nurse, for example, someone who's senior, experienced, someone who doesn't mind speaking up in the room, but someone who doesn't have another task that's that's distracting their attention. And that person then has the opportunity to, to call out to the room, the parameters for a surgical airway have been met, it's time to move on. And that means all I have to do in a state of you know, immense stress uh, in a cannot intubate, cannot oxygenate and ventilate scenario is I'm not making decisions around, should I do a surgical airway now? I did that five, six, seven minutes ago. All I have to do in the moment is listen. But part of my planning around surgical airways to, to make that procedure more likely to be successful and a big part of success in you know, a surgical airway is doing it when it needs to be done is I'll identify the parameters as part of my initial sort of speech to the room and offload the decision-making of those parameters have been met to someone experienced in the room who can call me out so that all I have to do in that state of stress is just listen.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I think what you really highlighted well there is that when you plan well for this event, it's viewed less as a failure by the team and just more as part of the plan. And unfortunately, you've made it to, to that part of your process, but it won't be viewed so much as a failure as, as opposed to just part of the plan, which is helpful for, for you as the, as the person maybe doing the procedure, but also for, you know, the rest of the room. I'm more curious about the the logistics. So, you know, we'll talk about how you do a surgical airway in a little bit, but I'm curious about the logistics around who you designate to do the procedure. Is that you or do you have someone else doing it? And and if it is someone else, you know, where are they in the room logistically? I guess ergonomically, where are they situated?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It all kind of depends, uh, to be honest, on who else is there in the room. Who else is available, um, you know, to me in the middle of that resuscitation? Um, In a lot of cases, you know, I I will sort of take on the responsibility myself, um, which I think if you are the, if you're the primary operator, um, I think it's fine for you to be the one that does the surgical airway as long as you are very clear uh, in your mind and very clear in your plan about how a surgical airway is going to happen, what's the, the trigger to, to do that. And so um, as long as you as the primary operator think that you are going to be in a position to do the surgical airway in which you can maintain procedural focus and procedural skill in the context of, I was just unsuccessful in intubating this patient, then I think it's fine for that primary operator to be that person. If you have someone else of a similar experience level or more experience than you, then it's often, I think, appropriate to delegate that task off to another person. And part of the logic there is that you know whoever the person is that's picking up a scalpel to do a surgical airway, which is in of itself a very stressful procedure, they're not walking into that procedure with the additional kind of cognitive load of, I just had a, an, an experience where I was unsuccessful in intubating this patient and having yeah. to kind of manifest that stress at the same time. A lot mm-hmm. of it just kind of depends on, like, what's the experience level of the person potentially picking up the scalpel? And when we say experience level, I mean, we're talking about what's the experience level with a procedure that, on average, you know, most emergency physicians are going to do or witness, like, once in their career. Um, you know, we're very fortunate, as you know, James, if are here in Halifax, so that we have access to, to clinical-grade cadavers, and so we have the opportunity to practice and to train and to hone our skill set with surgical airways on human tissue in a way that many other emergency practitioners across the country and across the world don't have the opportunity to do.
0: Yeah, well said. In general, what sort of equipment do you get ready before an airway that you anticipate might require a surgical airway? And and where do you where do you put the equipment? Is it on a table next to you? Is it just within eyesight?
1: Again, it all it all kind of depends on the how how worried am I, um, and that's going to range from at, at bare minimum every single intubation that I do is a is a is a conversation with with in our case our critical care paramedic uh, that is usually you know is there a scalpel on the airway cart? Where's the bougie? Where's the six O endotracheal tube? Now that bougie is usually out and part of the primary intubating plan, but there's always a conversation to say where's this, Where's the ten blade? Where's the the six uh, O endotracheal tube? That's the base, um, the bare minimum for, for what you perceive to be the easiest intubation uh, that you can imagine. And then I will escalate that depending upon the, the assessment of difficulty. And if I really, if I have concern, if this is someone where I have elevated my level of concern to articulate the need for a surgical airway to the room, potentially, uh, if I've discussed that out loud as part of the plan to the room, then to me, that's a, there's a separate, Mayo stand, there's a separate table, um, that 10 blade, the 6.0, uh, are sitting out on the table in the room, uh, you know, within arm's reach of either myself as the primary operator, or as a part of the department of medic, whoever that, that happens to be. Then to me, the cost of a 6.0 tube and 10, a disposable 10 blade scalpel, uh, is in, inconsequential. And those things should just be opened and on the table and ideally thrown in the garbage afterwards or in the sharp container afterwards, Never having been used.
0: Yeah, that's a great answer. So, just to, to reiterate, in terms of the equipment itself, for those who are listening who aren't familiar with the scalpel bougie or scalpel finger technique, uh, who might still be using the Seldinger techniques, essentially, as Nick's describing, all you really need to do this procedure is a 10 blade bougie uh, and a 6.0 tube and we'll get more into the logistics of the procedure itself as we go through. But I wanna get back to the case now, Nick, and just sort of walk us through the next step of steps. So you begin the intubation, the RSI drugs are given, you, you start to bag the patient through the apneic period as you're concerned about apnea intolerance related to hypoxia, and you note that there's quite a bit of difficulty with bagging. There's, there's sort of minimal chest rise and you have concerns about your mask seal. Your first attempt is difficult, um despite the fact that uh you're an awesome intubator uh you're 20 seconds into the attempt you're unsuccessful and the saturations begin to fall so walk us through where your head's at at this point and and what your next steps would
1: be sure so i guess the one thing to keep in mind um and and separate from maybe this talk but the one thing to keep in mind is that when that O2 saturation starts to fall we have to be i think very aware that our reserve of oxygen in an apneic patient is now completely consumed. So if our, if our apneic patient uh, is going to tolerate apnea, it is because they have a reserve of oxygen that will carry them through that window of time. And that reserve of oxygen is about 95% uh, within the lungs and the functional residual capacity. Um, and as long as gas exchange will occur, the O2 saturation will not fall until that functional residual capacity volume has been consumed. And so when we get into these situations of 20, 30 seconds in and the O2 SATs are falling and there's someone in the corner calling them out, um, it's it's not a gradual decline. We have to be cognizant as as providers at the bedside that when that SAT starts to fall, the entirety of the reserve is gone and that patient is going to rapidly desaturate uh, and very quickly move towards. VTAC and cardiac arrest. What I want to know in a situation where if I've not been able to, to successfully intubate the patient and the O2 saturations are starting to fall um, is I'm immediately going to stop what I'm doing uh, with a laryngoscope uh, and I'm going to come out and I'm going to try and re-bag, mask, ventilate that patient. You want to remember that and now the patient is paralyzed, they're apneic. Uh, if there's significant soft tissues that need to be managed Part of that bag mass ventilation strategy is to replace an OPA uh, or nasal trumpets, whatever whatever sort of soft tissue control you need, and to do good two-hand bag mass ventilation. What I want to know, though, is, can I, uh, can I objectively demonstrate that I can ventilate that patient? And the, obs- the objective demonstration that you can ventilate that patient is, do I have an entitled CO2 waveform on the monitor? The reason why that matters is that I'll often sort of use the line to, to, to residents and the trainees when we're talking about surgical airways to say, listen, patients who get surgical airways have a tendency to have bad outcomes. And it's not because they got a surgical airway. It's because they got a surgical airway way too late. And the reason why mm-hmm. patients get surgical airways too late is because we have historically waited for some arbitrarily terribly low O2 saturation to finally say, all right, our actions are now beyond contestation and we'll go ahead and do a surgical airway. Um, When a patient needs a surgical airway is when their O2 saturations are, you know, 90% but falling in the presence of a cannot intubate, cannot ventilate scenario. And the problem here in the decision-making and the initiation of the procedure is that we commonly use the wrong vital sign to say it's time for a surgical airway. An O2 saturation should not dictate the need for a surgical airway because when we're looking at an O2 saturation, we don't know whether we are dealing with pulse ox latency or whether we are dealing with an inability to oxygenate a patient. And so depending upon the patient's hemodynamic status, and certainly this is a good case of that, if the O2 saturations are falling, if we abort our attempt to intubate the patient and we try and bag mass ventilate them, that O2 saturation may continue to fall for the next 30 or 40 or 50 seconds um, before we ultimately see it bottom out and start to come back up because there is a latency period between a pulse oximeter, what's measured on the monitor, and what's reflected by what we're doing at the, at the patient's face in this case. Um, the issue there is that you don't know whether that's pulse ox latency or whether that's the inability to oxygenate the patient. And having to struggle with that decision-making is often what just delays the inevitable procedure that's going to save that patient's life and takes them down a road of anoxic brain injury and cardiac arrest. If you use capnography attached to your bag mass ventilator, you're going to get a waveform on the monitor in about six to eight seconds. And if you have a waveform capnography, you have a good waveform on the monitor with your two-handed... Two person bag mass ventilation, you're going to know very, very quickly I can objectively demonstrate that I can ventilate this patient. And if mm-hmm. I can ventilate this patient, then that gives you some reassurance to say, I'm going to carry on what I'm doing uh, and try and reoxygenate this patient, recognizing that in the face of, of, of successful ventilation, what I'm seeing on the pulse oximeter may represent pulse ox latency. And you can make a decision to carry on with what you're doing. But conversely, if you look up at that monitor and there is no end tidal CO2 waveform with your best attempt at two handed, two person bag mass ventilation, you're gonna know very quickly within a few seconds, I can't ventilate this patient. And if you can't ventilate the patient, there's no magical reason to think that you're somehow gonna be able to oxygenate the patient, which means that you know. This is a cannot intubate, cannot ventilate, cannot oxygenate scenario, and you can move on and do the surgical airway. The difference there is that using capnography, you're going to initiate the surgical airway with an objective measure before that patient is so hypoxemic that they're having a cardiac arrest and an anoxic brain injury. Mm,
0: Yeah, well said. So the summary there is essentially phona is indicated in a scenario where the Sats are falling and you can't ventilate them objectively uh, measured by entitled CO2 on the wave on the monitor, and the methods by which you're trying to ventilate them, obviously is your BVM rescue uh, that may have been sort of the the intubation attempt in a tube or uh, an LMA. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think if you are doing, you know, if you've got an OPA in and two-handed bag mass ventilation and you've got no end tidal waveform, I do totally agree um, with the idea of, of, of putting an LMA, some supraglottic or some extraglottic device in, and trying to bag mass ventilate them with that device in place. But again, what we're talking about is even if you do an OPA first, and then put an LMA in, we're talking about you know, 5, 10, 15 seconds of delay to the surgical airway, as opposed to maybe three or four or five times that length of delay, if we're using the pulse oximeter, which is not the right vital sign.
0: Yeah, in terms of superglottic device and your process of sort of moving along and doing a front of neck airway, are you placing, so you get in a scenario, you try to bag them, you get no end title CO2, you've made the decision that you're gonna move to the front of neck, are you simultaneously placing a supraglottic device in hopes that that works? Um, is someone else doing that? What are the logistics there?
1: Yeah, it, it kind of depends on who you identified as the person to do the crike. Um, but, but the way I would approach it is that if I'm the person that's going to do the surgical airway, um, then the placement of that, in, you know, and usually the device we would use here would be, say, an eye gel, the placement of that eye gel is being done by someone else, so that's sort of the moment where if it's one of our department of critical care paramedics and myself, that's the point of, of transition to say, all right, um, you're going you're gonna to place an eye gel and try and bag them through that as I'm stepping around the side of the stretcher to pick up the scalpel and begin the process of, of doing a surgical airway. If, I'm, mm-hmm. if I've delegated the surgical airway off to someone else, that moment at which I'm then placing the eye gel to try and bag them through the eye gel is the moment at which I'm triggering that assistant to say... Now's the time that you're picking up a scalpel uh, that you're putting a hand, uh, you know, towards the end to your neck and you're ready to go uh, in the next few seconds if there's not a waveform on the monitor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why don't you walk through the steps? So now you've walked around the bed, you picked up the scalpel. It's sort of go time. Let's walk through the actual steps of how you perform the surgical airway.
1: Sure. So if you're if you're right handed, you're going to step to the patient's right hand side. You're going to take your left hand, your non-dominant hand, uh, and you're going to grab onto the biggest, hardest structure in the anterior neck you can find. And realistically, that's going to be your thyroid cartilage. You're going to hold onto your patient's thyroid cartilage with your thumb and your middle finger, with your index finger sort of up into the air. And holding onto that thyroid cartilage is going to accomplish a couple of things. One, it's going to hold those structures in the midline because in an anesthetized, paralyzed patient those structures are going to flop side to side. and They're highly mobile. So you're going to hold on to uh, that thyroid cartilage in the midline. Um, and by doing that, you're also putting a little bit of downward pressure, which is going to help retract skin um, as you make your incision. You're then going to take your 10-blade scalpel. You're going to make a single vertical midline incision, uh, really starting up on the thyroid cartilage between your thumb and your middle finger and extending toward the patient's chest. Uh, really about the length of your thumb. Like this is a once-in-a-career procedure. Uh, you're going to make a big midline incision. This is not delicate layer-by-layer layer dissection. You're going to do this with some gusto to get down to those structures uh, because, you know, keep in mind this is a patient uh, who was fixing to die. They need you to get mm-hmm. in there as quickly as possible. Once you've made that vertical midline incision, um, and part of the reason we make that midline incision is that if you're off on your landmarks a little bit, You can extend that incision, you know, one way or the other uh, to get to those structures. If you're making a midline incision, it's incredibly safe. There's nothing in the midline uh, that you really need to worry all that much about hitting. If you're making horizontal incisions, if your landmarking is off, you end up making multiple uh, incisions across the patient's neck. And in a state of extreme physiologic stress yourself, it's entirely likely that you're going to deviate too far laterally where you will get into structures that you want to avoid hitting. Um, That vertical midline incision, once you've made it, it's going to start to bleed. It's not enough that the patient's going to exsanguinate, but it's enough that it's difficult to see very much. And so once that incision is made and your scalpel is now safely out of the way, that index finger that was up in the air is going to dive down into that incision. Um, What will happen is that if you're holding on to a thyroid cartilage uh, with your thumb and middle finger as your index finger goes down into that incision typically for most of us where it's going to land is really close to where the cricothyroid membrane is you're going to have a palpation a feel for that cricothyroid membrane which after doing this as i said you know 100 times on a cadaver we very quickly realize that the ability to identify the cricothyroid membrane through intact skin versus through that vertical midline incision is night and day difference it is incredibly easy identify the cricothyroid space through the skin incision. Um, It is often very difficult to do that in some patients with the skin intact. Once you identify your cricothyroid membrane, you're going to make a horizontal stab incision uh, through the cricothyroid membrane with your scalpel. Part of doing that is you're going to flex your DIP to bring the tip of your finger back out of the way uh, to avoid injury. Uh, you're going to open up that space by bringing the blade all the way towards yourself, all the way away from yourself. And then you really at that point have two options. There's two sort of opinions on this. I think I think both of them make some sense depending upon the patient in front of you and depending upon their body habitus, for example. One is you can leave that scalpel there uh, and advance a bougie along the edge of the blade down into the patient's trachea. The other option is that you can remove the blade And put your finger down into that cricothyroid space and advance the bougie along your finger. I would certainly say that you know, in a in a state of stress, if you've never done this before, or in particularly for patients uh, with excess anterior neck tissues where maybe you had to make a deeper incision, I would err on the side of favoring an approach of putting your finger in the hole uh, because that extra sort of tactile feel, that tactile feedback of knowing. I can physically feel the bougie moving along my finger through the cricothyroid space. I think is incredibly valuable. One of the ways in which this procedure goes wrong is by feeding the bougie but actually missing the cricothyroid space and dissecting down paratracheally into the mediastinum. Incredibly rare, but again, if you use your finger, had that tactile feedback that you're through the right space, it's probably less likely that that's going to happen. Once you've advanced your bougie down, you're going to do it gently. Go to the same end point you would as if you're intubated from above with a bougie down the right main stem usually. It's just going to happen a couple of inches sooner than it would had you gone through the patient's mouth. And once you've done that, you're going to advance a small caliber endotracheal tube, five and a half or maybe small adult 6.0 for the average adult patient uh, over that bougie and down through the cricothyroid uh, opening. You want to remember that like when you're doing this, it's entirely likely that your own heart rate's about 160 Uh, And so there's an expectation here that you're going to bury that tube too deep. And I think that's fine, as long as we all remember that's just a likely inevitable part of the procedure. You only have to advance the tube as deep as the cuff disappearing. Once the cuff has disappeared, it's in the patient's airway, uh, and you want to be cognizant that it's not so deep that it's a right main stem intubation. If you do that, it's not the end of the world. Just gradually bring the tube back. But just remember, in a state of stress... We're going to bury that tube off too deep and right main center will be really common. Once you've done that, your bougie comes out, you inflate your cuff, attach your bag mass ventilator and start trying to ventilate and oxygenate that patient and hang on to that tube for dear life.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, like losing that airway after you after you get it would be uh, a nightmare um, to say the least. So how do you secure it? I mean, obviously you're holding on to it and and, and hooking the bag up and seeing whether or not you have entitled waveform. But once all of that's confirmed, how do you how do you secure the tube in place so that you don't lose the airway?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Step number one is don't do anything for a couple of minutes, which is like just <laughs> hold on to it and let your own heart rate come down. Let the patient's sat- saturations come up and let your heart rate come down. There is no urgency to do anything uh, with that tube in the next couple of minutes. So just take a few breaths, let the patient stabilize, and you as an operator calm down a little bit. That's step number mm-hmm. one. Um, step number two is like the recognition that, that there are no commercial devices that will secure a six zero endotracheal tube through the cricothyroid space uh, appropriately. And part of the reason for that is that everything we normally use to secure an endotracheal tube through the mouth is based upon the rigidity of the mandible. Commercial devices are based on the rigidity of the mandible and securing it to the patient's face. Twill ties that are tied tight are based on the rigidity of the mandible. You can't tie a twill tie around someone's neck uh, tight enough to hold the tube uh, and be totally reassured that you're not compromising blood flow to the patient's head. The other problem is that you actually, you do need a good way to secure this because everything you're going to do with the proximal end of that endotracheal tube, whether it's connecting it to a bag mass ventilator, connecting it to an event circuit, everything you're going to do is going to attach something that is heavy and pendulous to the end of that tube that every single moment is actively trying to pull that tube out. And so the last thing you want to do is on the day you have to crank someone, find out that 20 minutes later in the elevator up to the ICU, the tube came out because <laughs> someone set it down for a second. The way that I would approach this And the way that I teach this is that I will take a big 2-0 silk suture, like the big green ones often that we use to suture in chest tubes. I will take that suture and put it straight through the lumen of the tube and sew it into the patient's neck. There's a couple of things you want to keep in mind. You want to be careful to avoid the pilot line on the endotracheal tube, which is that little tube from the cuff um, down to the port at which you inflate the cuff. It runs through the endotracheal tube in the last couple of inches of the tube. If you put the needle straight through that, you'll rupture the pilot line and the cuff will deflate. So you just want to be cognizant to avoid that. And two is that, you know, if you're going to put a hole for an endotracheal tube, you know, yes, you're going to create a leak in that vent circuit. And is it possible that a really sensitive ventilator may detect that and may alarm off saying there's a leak in the vent circuit? Yeah, I guess that's possible. Will that alarm going off for the next little while annoy someone? Sure. Do I care? Absolutely not. One of the things to keep in mind is that a 602 that went through a cricothyroid space is always to be considered a temporary airway. This is a patient who was about to die, who had a life-saving procedure done, and that that airway is going to be temporary because they are going to go somewhere else, they're going to wait for someone else, for some other piece of, like something else in the next couple of hours is likely to happen in which that patient is either going to be intubated from above or is going to have a tracheostomy placed. So that airway is always going to be temporary.
0: Absolutely. Just to end off here, uh, is there anything we missed, or is there anything that you want to sort of impart on people before we finish the the podcast as it relates to Fona?
1: I think the, the important messaging takeaway about surgical airways is that a surgical airway is not a failure of you to do anything. It's not a representation of the care that you provide. It is a rare life-saving procedure that in some patients is the inevitable outcome of a well-thought-out and often well-articulated airway management plan. And when you do that procedure, as long as you have prepared for it adequately and you have communicated appropriately and you have made the decision to go ahead and do that procedure at the appropriate moment in time, I think it's something that we as, as providers should be very proud of. Which is, which is counter to often the negative connotation that gets associated with it that I don't understand.
0: Yeah, well said, well said. Listen, man, you can intubate me any day. Um, that's it for uh, Fona Airway. Thanks, Nick, for being on the show. And hopefully you're back soon.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, buddy. Cheers. Front
0: of neck airway, crackothyrotomy, whatever you want to call it, it is the epitome of a high acuity low-opportunity event or a halo procedure. This is something that hopefully you never have to perform in the entirety of your career. But if you do have to perform it, you need to know how to perform it well. We as emergency physicians and as resuscitationists aren't defined by the things that we do frequently, but rather by the skills that we have to perform in those infrequent occurrences such as this. So how do you improve performance? Well, one of the biggest things is practice. And as Nick mentioned, we're a bit lucky here in Halifax. We have access to clinical grade cadavers to practice this procedure on. But practice doesn't have to be that high fidelity. It can be as simple as putting a size 6 tube into a toilet paper roll or even just cognitively rehearsing the mental steps that you would go through if you encountered an airway where you were unable to intubate the patient And then you had a failure to oxygenate, failure to ventilate scenario. The other thing that will lead to success is preparation. This is key. You need to make sure that you are prepared, that your team is prepared, and that all of the equipment that you're going to need is prepared. We need to normalize this as part of the airway plan. This can't be seen as a failure. It needs to just be considered as part of the airway plan. And it's very unfortunate that you've made it to this part of the plan. Nick brought up a really important point in this podcast that was the success of the procedure in terms of good patient outcomes is reliant on you making the decision to perform the cricothyrotomy at the right time. That means that you have to know what the correct indicator is to perform this, and it is not the saturation. We should be performing the cricothyroidomy when the SATs are falling and we've recognized that there is an inability to ventilate the patient. And how do we know objectively that we're adequately ventilating the patient? Well, this comes down to the end tidal CO2 waveform that you're gonna get on your monitor. If you've failed to intubate the patient, they begin to desaturate, and then you start rescue oxygenation with your BVM or your supraglottic device, the first vital sign that you need to look at on the monitor is the end title CO2 waveform. If you have good waveform, even if the sats are falling, you know that that patient's saturations are going to improve because you are adequately ventilating them. And what you're seeing in terms of saturations represents pulse ox latency or pulse ox lag and represents that patient's oxygen saturations, say, 30 seconds ago. Remember, the equipment that you need for this procedure is as simple as a 10 blade scalpel, a size five and a half to six endotracheal tube and a bougie. Gone are the days of using Seldinger technique. This requires fine motor movements. And when your heart rate is 160, what you want are gross motor movement skills, an open procedure, which at this point are standard in emergency medicine resuscitation would be using this scalpel bougie technique. Finally, to leave you with, front of neck airway or cricothyrotomies are technically not a difficult procedure. There is nothing hard about actually performing this skill. The difficult part is cognitively deciding to do it. And if you practice and prepare, then you'll be ready to make that decision. That's it for today's podcast. If you like this podcast, you can head over to www.therecesscourse.com for more free open access resuscitation content. Thank you for listening to The Recess Course.